Welcome, fellow crime addicts, to our weekly CA meeting. I'm Kylie. And I'm Tay. Grab a cup of coffee. And and let's let's get get our fix. we are talking about the happy face killer while sipping on a salted caramel latte. If you don't already have this recipe or want to learn more, head over to our website at crimeaddictspodcast.com and click on the coffee tab. This week we are shouting out Badio underscore Ohana, Elijah Lay, and Taraboo74. They've liked, commented, rated, reviewed, or shared our content across all social media outlets. So thank you guys so much. We are so grateful for all of the support you guys have been giving us throughout this podcast. For your chance to get a shout out on our next episode, please go like, follow, rate, review, or share across all social media platforms. You can find us at Crime Addicts Pod on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, and IG, or at our website, crimeaddictspodcast.com. There, you will find a spot for our addicts where you can submit case recommendations. There is also a pretty amazing donate button. And if you're an Amazon shopper, you can click on our Amazon link and it will redirect you to the Amazon site or app. Simply add your items to your cart and check out. This process will help support our show and it doesn't cost you anything extra. January of 1990, 23-year-old Tanya Bennett decided to go out for a few drinks and to hopefully meet up with a few of her friends. It was a cold, damp night, typical weather for that time of year in Portland, Oregon, and Tanya dressed appropriately. She went to the B&I Tavern, one of her favorite spots on Portland's southeast side. Tanya was described by family members and friends as mentally slow and slightly retarded. She became visibly intoxicated after multiple beers and wine coolers. At first, Tanya never paid much attention to the tall, burly-looking, loud-mouthed man sitting at the bar, and, judging from all of his outward appearances, bar patrons would later say that he hadn't paid much attention to Tanya until later in the evening, after it had become apparent that Tanya was feeling the effect of the alcohol. But, in reality, he had been watching her all night, mentally making plans for the remainder of the evening. A little later, the man casually walked over to the pool tables area where Tanya had been watching the players. He had a glass of beer in his hand. He introduced himself to her and offered to buy her a drink. She accepted. The man's name was Keith Hunter Jesperson, but Tanya may have only known him as Keith or perhaps even an alias. Jesperson was a 35-year-old six feet, six inches tall hulk of a man who weighed in at 240 pounds. Tanya was young and impressionable. She was easy to befriend, trusted everyone, and hadn't learned the reality of stranger danger yet. At one point, Jesperson excused himself and left the tavern for a while without explaining to Tanya where he was going. When he returned a short time later, he met Tanya outside and offered to buy her dinner. However, when he checked his wallet, he saw how much money he had left. He realized that he didn't have enough cash to buy them dinner. He told Tanya that he had more money at home and invited her to accompany him there to get it. Tanya willingly agreed to accompany Jesperson to his residence, located nearby, and when they arrived, she followed him inside, unaware 
that the quest for cash had been merely a ruse to separate her from the tavern and the patrons inside it. Instead of retrieving money to buy her dinner, he coaxed her into having sex. Later, the pent-up anger that had been seething inside Jesperson for so long made its way to the surface. Even before getting dressed after their sexual encounter, he began taunting Tanya and before long was making mean, cruel remarks to her. And soon they were into a full-blown argument during which Jesperson, by his own later admission, began striking her. When Tanya attempted to fight back and defend herself against this giant man, Jesperson began to viciously beat her about the face and head. In one swift movement, he placed one of his massive hands around her frail neck, and with the other, he grabbed a rope. Without even taking the time to think about his actions, Jesperson wrapped the rope around Tanya's neck and pulled it tight as he strangled her and watched the life slowly leave her body. When she ceased to struggle and her body became limp, he let her partially nude body slump to the floor. Jesperson didn't panic after killing Tanya. Leaving her inside the rented house, he drove back to the B&I tavern and sat around drinking and talking with anyone who would listen to him, presumably to establish an alibi for himself. After a few more beers, Jesperson drove back to the house and calmly loaded Tanya's body into the front seat of a friend's car. Knowing that he had to dispose of the body, he drove eastward, past Portland's city limit, toward the Columbia River Gorge. Sticking to the old highway, which was much darker, far less traveled, and consisted of a series of curves and switchbacks, Jesperson found a suitable place near Crown Point where it was secluded and dark, just the right place to dump a body. He pulled the car over to the side and stopped. It was quiet, and there were no sounds of traffic in the distance. Confident that he was alone, Jesperson pulled Tanya's body out of the car and tossed it over the embankment of one of the switchbacks, discarding her corpse as if it were a piece of unwanted trash. After discarding Tanya's body, Jesperson exited the highway and tossed the Walkman that she had left inside the car out of the window. He then drove to a truck stop near Troutdale and drank coffee the remainder of the night, yet another attempt to establish an alibi for himself if it turned out that one was needed. Afterward, just after dawn and now wide awake on a caffeine high, Jesperson drove up the Sandy River Highway and flung the contents of Tanya's purse, which included her Oregon identification, as well as her purse itself, into a brushy area near the river. So who is this Keith Jesperson guy? Well, he was born on April 6, 1955, to Les and Gladys Jesperson in Chilliwack, British Columbia, Canada. He had four siblings, two brothers and two sisters, and he fell right in the middle of the pack. Jesperson's father was a domineering, abusive alcoholic. Les looked down on women and put his kids down with sarcasm and wisecracks. Jesperson received little attention from Les compared to his other siblings. Once, Les shocked Jesperson in a greenhouse as a form of punishment. Later, Les would claim it was only 12 volts, but Jesperson claims it was 220. Jesperson's paternal grandfather was prone to violence and his sexual sadism was later traced back to his great uncle Charlie. Okay, so I just want to say we don't necessarily know who great uncle Charlie is and that almost sounds like a mythical character or something <laughs> like that. So we're not exactly sure of who exactly he is, but I mean, I don't know, Tay, what do you think? I would assume that that's on his dad's dad side. side. I mean, yeah. 
it's we're obviously coming like all of this yeah. issue is coming from his dad's side. I would assume that that uncle is on his dad's side too. It'd be random if it wasn't. I yeah. mean, it's possible, but it just doesn't seem plausible. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> so he was treated like an outcast by his own family and teased by other children for his large size at a young age. After moving to Sella, Washington in the United States, he had trouble fitting in and making his friends because of his large size. His brothers did not help him. Instead, they nicknamed him Igor or Ig, a name that stuck throughout his school years. Because of this, Jespersen was a shy child, content to play by himself much of the time. Jespersen's earliest memory was of rolling a rock down a sling in a park. It hit his little brother on the head and drew blood, which made his brother cry. In 1961, at the age of five or like six, Jesperson started to kill and torture animals. For example, he bashed in gopher heads, nailed crows to a board and threw knives at them, nailed cats and small dogs to a board and stuck them with nails and needles. And his favorite form of torture was crimp a couple of cat's tails together with wire and hang them over a rope. They'd claw each other until one was dead. In one instance, Les witnessed him throw a cat against the pavement and finished it off by strangling it to death. And then Les bragged about it to others. This is just messed up. In 1964, at the age of nine, Jesperson called a lady a bitch and her 16-year-old son jumped out of his car slugged him and kicked him twice with pointy-toed cowboy boots. So in response, Les beat Jesperson until he couldn't scream anymore. Jesperson frequently played with a mischievous boy named Martin who always blamed Jesperson for his wrongdoings, which would result in him getting belted in front of everybody. One day, Jesperson beat Martin unconscious and said he would have killed Martin if his father didn't pull him off. Another boy held Jesperson's head underwater while swimming at a lake until he passed out. So Jesperson realized he had to stand up to this bully. So at the public swimming pool, he held the bully underwater until a lifeguard pulled him off. Jesperson again said he had every intention of drowning him, making this his second attempt at murder. In 1966, at the age of just 11, Les charged him and his brother's rent to teach them the value of money. Jesperson later found out he had been paying far longer than his brothers were required to. Another crazy story. So Jesperson and some schoolmates were forced to strip off their clothes by a neighbor dairyman who also stripped his own clothes. The neighbor asked the kids to touch his genitals, but Jesperson ran away. At some point, Les had given him a BB gun and he shot a neighbor in the genitals and also shot an overweight neighbor bending over to pick raspberries. <laughs> that image was crazy. But so around 1968 or like 1969, when he was around 13 or 14 years old, Jesperson's friend, Tom Hager, introduced him to shoplifting. In 1969, at the age of 14, this was a big year for Jesperson. He lost his virginity and later described it as rape. Also, at the age of 14, he shot an arrow with an exploding tip at the home of one of his teachers. He had a strange fascination with fires. His grandpa did too, and he started experimenting with pipe bombs and cannons. A classmate's recollection of Jesperson goes like this, quote, 
He could be bright when he wanted to, but then he would do something stupid. He'd be too kind or too mean, too generous or too stingy. You never saw the in-between. I always wondered if he was in control of his own brain. If he might have had brain damage, he sure acted like it. End quote. In 1972 to 1973, around the age of 17 and 18, Jesperson was teased about not being able to reach the top of the rope they had to climb for wrestling practice. So one day, he did, and the rope pulled loose from the bracket and he fell 25 feet to the hardwood floor. He slammed his head hard on the side. Jesperson graduated from high school in 1973 with the rank of 161 in a class of 174. His IQ was 102. He did not attend college because his father did not believe he could do it. Although Jesperson was not successful with girls in high school, having never even attended a school dance or his prom, he did enter into a relationship after high school in 1975, when Jesperson was aged around 20. This is when he married Rose Huke, and the couple had three children, Melissa, Jason, and Carrie. Jesperson worked as a truck driver to support the family. In 1985, at the age of 30, Gladys, his mother, died and Jesperson didn't have much remorse. Rose began to suspect Jesperson was having affairs when women claiming to be his girlfriends would call the house and ask for him. Tension in the marriage increased and in 1990, they got a divorce. Rose relocated with the children to Spokane, Washington. Jesperson relocated to Portland, Oregon to live with his girlfriend. The oldest child, Melissa, was 10 at this time. Jesperson's primary ambition in life was to become a policeman. Specifically, he wanted more than anything else to become a member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, which is RCMP. At the age of 35, after being accepted into the RCMP program, Jesperson felt that he was well on his way to achieving his dream. However, after sustaining a fall from a rope climbing exercise during RCMP training that severely injured him, he quickly found that his hopes and dreams would not be coming true. Unable to complete the training due to the injury, he was permanently dismissed from the RCMP. He suddenly felt spurned and deprived and vowed to himself to get even with a society whose rules barred him from fulfilling his goals. He then sought work again as an interstate truck driver after relocating to Cheney, Washington. Jesperson soon realized that this job afforded him the opportunity to kill without being suspected. Okay, so now that we have a background on Jesperson and know who he was, let's get back to the time of the crimes. So a few days after Tanya's body was discarded, a passerby found her body where it had landed in a ditch after tumbling down the embankment. Horrified by the grisly discovery, the passerby notified the police. Photos were taken, the crime scene was processed in the usual manner, and the body was taken to the morgue where it was initially identified only as a Jane Doe. Tanya's death didn't make much news at first in the local newspapers. The articles that first appeared consisted only of a few short paragraphs outlining the discovery of her body and police statements that she was found half-dressed, beaten, and strangled to death, that one of her teeth had punctured her lower lip, and the fact that she had a rope around her neck. A description of her physical appearance was also published, and it didn't take too long for her body to be positively identified. 
The police had no suspects in the case, and for the time being, Jesperson was free to roam in his quest for another victim. Meanwhile, armchair detective Laverne Pavlinak, who was 57, read the news reports surrounding Tanya's death with great interest. An avid reader of mysteries and the true crime books, as well as a devoted fan to television crime shows, Laverne was familiar with police procedures. As more information became available about Tanya's murder, Laverne continued to read the newspapers and watch the television news reports, taking in as much information about the case as possible. She eventually decided that Tanya's case could serve as the perfect vehicle to end her abusive 10-year relationship with her live-in boyfriend, John Sosnovsky, who was 43 years old. Before she put her plan in motion, Laverne first did her homework and learned that Oregon State Police Detective Alan Corson and Multnomah County Sheriff's Detective John Ingram were conducting Tanya's murder investigation. After working out a scenario in her mind, she called the detectives and told them that she had important information about the case. Detectives Corson and Ingram, both eager to solve the case, promptly went to Laverne's home to hear what she had to say. By the time the detectives arrived, Laverne thought she had it all figured out, a foolproof way to get John out of her life for good, even if it meant that she might have to spend some time behind bars too. She told Detectives Corson and Ingram of her stormy relationship with John and how she had been roughed up at his hands for years. She also said that she was turning him in for the rape and murder of Tanya. The detectives, interested, listened as Laverne told them that she had been forced by John to help him rape Tanya. She explained in seemingly intricate detail about the rape, right down to the placement of the rope around Tanya's neck and her subsequent strangulation at John's hand. She also told the detectives that John had forced her to assist him in disposing of the body and covering up the crime. Detectives Corson and Ingram didn't know quite what to make of Laverne's statement. Although eager to close the books on the case, they left Laverne's home that day without making any arrests, as they needed time to digest what they had just been told. They also needed to talk to John, and when they did, he denied what Laverne had told them and claimed that he was innocent. Over the next several weeks, detectives continued to interview Laverne about the case, sometimes of their own initiative and sometimes due to calls that Laverne had made to their offices claiming to have additional information. On other occasions, the detectives took Laverne out to the Columbia River Gorge to see if she could point out specific locations that only the police and the killer would know about. She did very well and passed the test with regard to where Tanya's body had been dumped. But she was unable to point out other important things, such as where Tanya's personal belongings, purse, and so forth might have been located. As the investigation continued, with Laverne and John clearly the prime suspects in the case, Detectives Corson and Ingram conferred with Multnomah County Deputy District Attorney Jim McIntyre and turned over copies of their case materials to the prosecutor. As a result, on March 5, 1990, Laverne and John were arrested and charged with Tanya's death. Although he had originally claimed that he was innocent, John, facing a possible death penalty, pleaded guilty. Using Laverne's detailed confession, McIntyre was instrumental in getting both Laverne and John sentenced to prison on February 8, 1991 for life for John and a minimum of 10 years for Laverne. It turned out to be more than what she had bargained for, and before long, Laverne began claiming that she had made up the entire story to end her relationship with John. However, no one believed her now that she was behind bars. 
Meanwhile, with two people put away for a murder that they didn't commit, Jesperson remained free to roam the country, trolling for new victims. Following Tanya's murder, as all the attention was going to Laverne and John, Jesperson wrote a confession on the bathroom wall of a truck stop and signed it with a smiley face. When that did not create the attention he desired, he wrote letters to the media outlets and police departments confessing to his murders, starting with a six-page letter to the Oregonian in which he revealed the details of his killings. Jesperson signed each letter with a smiley face. This led Phil Stanford, the journalist working the story for the Oregonian, to dub Jesperson the Happy Face Killer. Although the letters were turned over to the police, there was little for investigators to go on with regard to identifying the letter writer. After murdering Tanya, Jesperson soon found that he had become addicted to killing. It appears that Jesperson waited nearly a year and a half before committing his second murder, after which the others appeared in rapid succession. According to Jesperson's account, the next murder attributed to him occurred sometime in late July or early August of 1992. On August 30th of 1992, approximately 10 miles north of Blythe, California, police dogs dragged a body from the desert in Riverside, California. Unfortunately, it was decomposed beyond recognition. The coroner's office could conclude only that it had belonged to a blonde woman between the ages of 20 and 30, who stood a little more than 5 foot 3 inches tall. She had been raped and strangled. Investigators determined that she had been dead for a number of weeks. Labeled a Jane Doe by the police, Jesperson would later tell authorities that her name was Claudia. He claimed that they went back to his hotel room where they had sex several times before she demanded payment. Quote, I wasn't going to start handing over money, he wrote. She didn't like the answer. She got mad and said, we'll see about that. She died. End quote. Jesperson also detailed how he disposed of the body, quote, at the bottom of a canyon with a lot of brush, end quote, matching the description of where Jane Doe's body was found by police. The following month, the body of Cynthia Lynn Rose, 32, was found along U.S. Highway 99 near Turlock, California. She, too, had been dead for some time, and her death was originally listed as a drug overdose. Jesperson wrote in a letter to the Oregonian and would later claim Cynthia was a sex worker who entered his truck at a truck stop while he slept. Lori Ann Pentland, 26, became the next victim. Lori's body was found in November of 1992 behind a G.I. Joe's store in Salem, Oregon. Detectives determined that she had been strangled but were left with no leads as to who her killer might be. According to Jesperson, Lori attempted to double the fee she charged for the sex he had been engaged in with her. She threatened to call the police, and he strangled her. On June 3, 1993, another Jane Doe was found near Gilroy, California, on State Route 152, a.k.a. the Pacheco Pass Highway, near a truck turnout. The woman was 45 at the time of her death and had been dead for only a couple of days when her body was found, and a county coroner listed her death as a drug overdose. Her case would eventually be reopened and looked at as a homicide after the happy face killer wrote another letter and referred to her as a street person. He labeled her as Carla or Cindy, but she was known to the authorities as Blue Pacheco. During the autopsy, the report indicated that she had a five-inch scar on her abdomen, possibly the result of a surgery that removed her gallbladder. 
She also had track marks on her arm from drug overdose, no evidence of childbirth, and her clothing was typical of a transient homeless person. As of April 19, 2022, and after nearly 30 years, this Jane Doe was identified. The Santa Clara County Sheriff's Office says genetic genealogy was used to match DNA to Patricia Skipple in Colton, Oregon. Sergeant Shannon Catalano of the Santa Clara County Sheriff's Office brought the case to the DNA Doe Project in 2019, hoping that investigative genetic genealogy could be used to identify the woman. Volunteers with the DNA Doe Project started work researching the genetic matches in December of 2019, finally arriving at a likely candidate in 2021. The identity was recently confirmed through DNA testing. Quote, this case was exceptionally challenging due to the recent Norwegian ancestry, which resulted in very distant DNA matches on GED match and family tree DNA, said DNA Doe Project team leader Karen Binder in a statement. Quote, it would not have been possible to solve this case without the dedication of our law enforcement partners at Santa Clara County Sheriff's Office. End quote. Santa Clara County Deputy Sheriff Sergeant Shannon Catalano was thanked and credited for tenaciously working the case and contacting potential family members to encourage them to voluntarily upload their DNA profiles to GED Match, the public DNA database that can be used for forensic cases. This is honestly crazy and amazing at the same time that this this woman just got identified. I know. And it just gives me hope for all of our other cases where we have like unidentified victims. Like, yeah, bring on science, bring on <laughs> DNA. That is amazing. Absolutely. So the remains of what would be known as victim number six on the happy face killers list. Another Jane Doe was found more than a year later on September 14, 1994 west of Crestview, Florida, along Interstate 10, by a road crew working in the Florida Panhandle. The remains consisted of mostly bones of a woman that investigators believe had been approximately 40 years old at the time of her death. The following year, a detective would begin focusing on Jesperson as a possible suspect, but only after Jesperson claimed victim number eight and following his apprehension. Although homicide detectives had made several attempts at identifying the woman through facial recognition, for the time being, investigators had little to work with aside from the bones. Jesperson, however, would eventually claim that this victim's name was Susan. Although her corpse would not be found until September 1995, 21-year-old Angela Sabrise of Oklahoma City would become Jesperson's seventh victim. Until then, few people would realize that Angela was even missing, much less dead, due to the transient lifestyle she had led. According to Jesperson's leader admission, he picked up Angela near Spokane, Washington in January of 1995 and had agreed to give her a ride to Fort Collins, Colorado, to see her father. At one point along the way, they stopped so that she can call her dad, who Jesperson would later claim told her that he didn't want to see her and to stay away. Afterward, Angela changed her mind about going to Fort Collins and asked Jesperson to take her to Indiana instead to visit a friend. In a rage, I murdered her in Wyoming, Jesperson said. Jesperson went on to explain that he became enraged with Angela when Angela would not let him sleep when they had stopped at a truck stop just east of Cheyenne, Wyoming. 
She kept bitching at him to keep driving in bad weather, and he ended up strangling her by placing his fist tightly against her throat. Afterward, he went back to sleep. When he awoke about three hours later, he drove on into Nebraska and pulled off into a rest area where he bound her body with black nylon rope and secured it face down beneath his rig. He dragged her body along the pavement for about 10 to 12 miles until it became loose. He then untied her body and threw it into a ditch situated about 75 feet off of the Interstate 80, some 250 miles east of the truck stop where he had killed her. The nylon rope was still attached to her ankles. It wasn't until a victim number eight that Jesperson became careless by murdering someone he knew instead of a complete stranger. Julie Ann Winningham, 41, of Camas, Washington, was believed to have been murdered on March 10, 1995, in Washougal, Washington, just a few miles east of Vancouver, Washington. Like the others, she had been strangled and her nude body had been dumped over an embankment alongside State Highway 14, just east of the Clark and Skamania County line. Unlike the others, Julie's friends and relatives knew that she had been seeing Jesperson and provided the first valuable link. Julie had recently sold her car and he signed as a witness. So with that, investigators now had a name and aided in apprehending a dangerous monster. Clark County, Washington Sheriff's Department Detective Rick Buckner initially learned that Julie was a Camas resident who had relocated to Utah for a while after breaking up with her truck driver husband. According to those he interviewed, she returned to Camas in February of 1995 with a man named Keith Jesperson, who she referred to as her fiancé. According to the information that Detective Buckner uncovered, Julie apparently met Jesperson at a truck stop in Utah and had hitched a ride with him back to Washington. A number of her acquaintances told Detective Buckner that Jesperson was a big guy and some described him as a giant and a baby Huey type person. Detective Buckner also learned that Jesperson had no criminal record in the state of Washington. He learned that Jesperson had married a woman named Rose in 1986 and that they had three children. The only records that turned up his search for information about Jesperson were divorce court records from Yakima County. It didn't take long for Detective Buckner to learn of the Cheney Trucking Company for which Jefferson worked. Company officials told Detective Buckner that he traveled all over the country and in the days immediately following Julie's death, he was on the road to Pennsylvania. The company officials provided Detective Buckner with Jesperson's travel itinerary back toward the West Coast, a route that would take him through Texas, New Mexico, and eventually to Arizona. By Wednesday, March 22, 1995, Detective Buckner had traced Jesperson to Las Cruces, New Mexico, a city located in the southern part of the state near the Mexican border. With the help of sheriff's deputies in Las Cruces, Detective Buckner and another detective detained Jesperson for more than six hours and questioned him about the murder of Julie. Jesperson would later say that they kept asking him if he wanted to talk about it or if he desired an attorney present during the questioning. And when he said that he did in fact want an attorney, they asked him why he needed one, whether he had done something that required a lawyer's assistance. Jesperson wouldn't talk and lacking any concrete evidence to arrest him, the detectives had no choice but to release him. Afterward, Jesperson immediately headed for Arizona and Detective Buckner returned to Washington. 
While in southern Arizona, Jesperson attempted to assign some kind of reason to the murders of the women he had killed, or so he claimed. Unable to do so, he claims that he made two attempts at suicide, the first on the evening of March 22nd, and the second attempt the following evening, each time overdosing himself on over-the-counter sleeping pills. Each time, he said, his body had rejected the sleep aids. It's kind of interesting to me because he's such a big man. Like, how would you know what is an OD for that size and weight? You know what I mean? I mean, a whole bottle is obviously ODing, but if his body is rejecting it, it's like, well, duh, you're a giant. <laughs> right. Like, you're literally a giant. It's like, that's nothing. <laughs> it's nothing on your body, bro. Right. So on March 24th, after apparently deciding that the cops would nail him for Julie's murder and that he might fare considerably better with the judicial system if he turned himself in, Jesperson wrote two letters, one to his children and one to his brother. The letter to his brother in part read, Seems like my luck has run out. I will never be able to enjoy life on the outside again. I got into a bad situation and got caught up with emotion. I killed a woman in my truck during an argument. With all of the evidence against me, it looks like I truly am a black sheep. The court will appoint me a lawyer, and there will be a trial. I am sure they will kill me for this. I am sorry that I turned out this way. I have been a killer for five years, and have killed eight people, assaulted more. I guess I haven't learned anything. Dad always has worries about me because of what I have gone through in the divorce, finances, etc., I have been taking it out on different people. As I saw it, I was hoping they would catch me. I took 48 sleeping pills last night, and I woke up well-rested. The night before, I took two bottles of pills to no avail. They will arrest me today. So later that same night, after dropping the letters he had written into the mail, Jesperson called Detective Buckner from Arizona and confessed to the murder of Julie Ann Winningham. According to Jesperson, he confessed to Julie's murder because he knew that he would either be sentenced to life in prison or executed, and in either case, he would no longer be in a position where he could kill another woman. Six days later, Detective Buckner flew to Arizona to take Jesperson into his custody and return him to Washington State, where he would be formally charged with Julie's murder. According to what Jesperson would later write, Detective Buckner said to him, quote, Wesley Allen Dodd once wore those same cuffs. In 1989, Dodd sexually assaulted and murdered three boys in Vancouver, Washington. He was arrested later um, that year after a failed attempt to abduct a six-year-old boy at a movie theater, just in case you didn't know. <laughs> so coming back to the story, Jesperson said in his writings that he thought to himself after Detective Buckner's remark, quote, if he only knew what was in them now, he would faint, end quote. When he arrived in Washington, Jesperson called his brother and instructed him to destroy the letter that he had sent him. However, on the advice of a lawyer and Jesperson's father, his brother decided to turn the letter over to the police because they felt it was unlawful to hold onto or destroy evidence. Shortly after it was turned over to the police, the letter was published by a number of newspapers. Meanwhile, Detective Buckner began transmitting information about Jesperson to law enforcement agencies around the nation. He provided information about Jesperson's confession and the letter that he had written to his brother, 
and inquired whether there were any jurisdictions that had any unsolved homicides that might fit into Jesperson's travel itineraries. Within days, Detective Buckner's office received 16 responses from law enforcement agencies as far as New York and Florida, and the process of examining unsolved homicides in a number of states had begun. In addition to Jesperson's routes of travel, investigators took another look at the physical evidence that had been collected from a number of crime scenes involving murdered women, including bodily fluids or DNA analysis for a possible match to Jesperson. Focusing on female homicide victims found along major roadways and near truck stops, authorities in Oregon, Nevada, and Utah were among the first to begin re-examining their open cases. Of particular interest to investigators in Oregon was an unsolved case involving a woman who disappeared from the vicinity of a truck stop in the Wilsonville area in the northern part of the state in August of 1994 and whose body was eventually found along a highway near Medford in southern Oregon in March of 1995, shortly after Jesperson's arrest. Authorities in Utah and the Great Basin area of northeastern Nevada also re-examined several unsolved homicides involving women to see if Jesperson somehow fit into the scheme of things. Although their gut instinct told them that Jesperson was probably their killer in a number of their cases they re-examined, they lacked sufficient evidence for bringing any charges against him. Detective Buckner learned that by the time Jesperson was five or six years old, this is when he started his animal cruelty pattern. Quote, I was Arnold Schwarzenegger. Jesperson bragged to a reporter. It was like I was playing war. When I looked at those dogs, they would squat and pee. They'd be so scared that they'd tremble, end quote. By his own admission, Jesperson enjoyed the fear he instilled in these animals and took great pleasure in watching and feeling the life literally drain out of the animals until they succumbed to death. Quote, you come to the point where killing something is nothing, Jesperson said. It's the same feeling, he said, whether he was strangling a human or an animal. Quote, You've already felt the pressure on the throat of them trying to grab air. You're actually squeezing the life out of these animals, and there isn't much difference. They're going to fight for their lives just as much as a human being will. End quote. While Jesperson sat in the Clark County Jail for the murder of Julie, he began talking to his attorney, Thomas Phelan, about other crimes that he had committed. The conversation began when attorney Phelan asked Jesperson about the letter that he had sent to his brother, which had been turned over to the police. In an adrenaline-scared rush, Jesperson began telling his innermost secrets to the attorney when he realized that he would be labeled a serial killer after the police linked him to additional killings. One of those cases involved the murder of 21-year-old Angela Surprise. Against legal advice to keep his mouth shut, Jesperson decided to tell his account of Angela's murder to other inmates who, in turn, reported what he had said to authorities. Clark County investigators relayed the information to their counterparts in Wyoming and Nebraska. Later, Jesperson would also talk to investigators about Angela's killing as well as others and would detail his accounts in his letter-writing campaign and internet postings made possible through the help of people willing to post his writings on their websites. As spring slowly turned into summer, and summer just as slowly made its way into autumn, 
Jesperson sat in jail in Washington with little else to do except to think about his crimes and make plans on how he might manipulate the system to his benefit as prosecutors build their case against him for the murder of Julie. Similarly, authorities from Wyoming confronted him with what was little evidence and information they had regarding Angela. At one point, they showed him a photo of her in which he identified Angela as the person that he had picked up and killed. He also told the investigators about a significant detail that would leave little doubt in their minds that he was, for reasons known only to him, being truthful with them regarding Angela. He said that she had a tattoo of a cartoon character, Tweety Bird, on one of her ankles, in which Tweety was making an obscene gesture with one of its hands. In September of 1995, based on specific and accurate information from Jesperson, relayed by Clark County, Washington investigators to their counterparts in Nebraska, a Nebraska highway patrolman found Angela's remains lying near the shoulder of Interstate 80 near Gothenburg, a small town of 3,200 residents located near the South Plate River, where it had been lying in tall grass for several months, probably since early January. Badly decomposed, most of her skin had decayed, and investigators were able to identify her only after examining pelvic x-rays and finding the tattoo of Tweety Bird that was still visible on one of her ankles. This was one of only a few identifying marks that remained on her body. As the Wyoming investigators continued to systematically build their case against Jesperson, one in which they had hoped would eventually bring him the death penalty, Jesperson continued making plans of his own and how to manipulate the system to his benefit. Nonetheless, Jesperson was soon charged with Angela's murder, and Wyoming prosecutors promptly rejected an offer by his attorney for him to provide information in exchange for an agreement for Wyoming not to seek the death penalty. Meanwhile, investigators in Washington, California, and Oregon went to work examining Jesperson's handwriting. Because of the comments that he had been making to other inmates and due to the letter that he had written to his brother, the investigators wanted to determine if Jesperson was the same person who had written the letters to the Oregonian columnist claiming to have killed three women in California and two in Oregon. Using the letter that he had wrote to his brother claiming that he had killed eight women over a five-year period, the investigators saw similarities not only in the handwriting but in the crimes themselves. Regarding one of the California victims, the happy face killer wrote that he had used duct tape to bind her hands and feet, a fact that was never released to the public. Investigators also found duct tape near her body. Similarly, in statements he made to the police, Jefferson claimed to have taped Julie's mouth shut with duct tape but there were discrepancies in the letters as well. In one Happy Face Killer letter, the writer claimed to have quite long haul drivings and was instead, quote, employed as a driver where I am in the public eye and out of harm's way. I got away from what became easy. I do not want to kill again, end quote. Yet another similarity in the letter writing between Jesperson and the Happy Face Killer appeared when Jesperson wrote a letter to the Colombian newspaper, in Vancouver, Washington, and had it smuggled out of the jail. In that letter, he again alluded to a desire to be caught so that he would not kill again, and stated, quote, I know what I've done has been wrong, and I feel sorry for the families of my victims. I am, in fact, the happy face killer. I created that man because I wanted to be stopped. But it is hard to just come out and say it. 
I have prayed many nights in the cold, dark prison cell for the answer, and God has told me to come clear with it all. Tell the truth about everything. I will not be happy until I am replacing that man, John, in the Oregon State Penitentiary for the crime I did, and he goes free. Most people will say that I am a monster. I am not a monster. Just like the movie Jurassic Park, I was created by people, end quote. Jesperson's comments about John and their obvious relevance to the Tanya Bennett case naturally shocked the investigators, especially detectives Corson and Ingram and prosecutor McIntyre, who were responsible for putting John and Laverne behind bars. His comments marked the first time that anyone had sown any seeds of doubt that the right suspects had been prosecuted. Naturally, all those involved were inclined to believe that Jesperson was lying and that they had convicted the right people for Tanya's murder. As soon as I feel we have the wrong people in jail, you'll probably catch me going to Salem to get them out, Multnomah County District Attorney Michael Schrunk said of Jesperson's remarks. In the meantime, Jesperson's attorney went to work setting up a plea bargain agreement between the state of Oregon and Jesperson regarding Tanya's murder. In writing the letter to the Columbian, Jesperson realized that he would need the help of public opinion if he were going to be able to convince the authorities that he had killed Tanya. When someone looks at Jesperson's case as a whole, it becomes easier to see that his motivation for confessing to Tanya's murder was not so much out of a desire to come clean or that he was being sympathetic or empathetic but was in all likelihood motivated more out of his own desire for self-preservation. Jesperson knew that if extradited to Wyoming, he would face a potential death penalty for the murder of Angela. However, if he were able to confess to Tanya's murder and be sentenced to death in Oregon, a state where a death sentence hasn't been carried out since the early 1960s, he knew that he could, at the very least, postpone any actions that Wyoming might be able to carry out against him. It was even likely that Oregon would not sentence him to death, but would give him life in prison instead if his attorney was successful in working out a plea agreement. At any rate, he would later reveal that his reasoning had been that his confession and subsequent sentence in Oregon would make it ultimately more difficult for Wyoming to get their hands on him. The press appeared more than eager to help out as reporters from a number of newspapers contacted Jesperson about the claims he was making. He told them that Laverne and John were innocent and had been sent to prison for a crime that he had committed. According to Jesperson, the police did not believe him at first and insisted that they had the right people in jail for Tanya's murder. It wasn't until he insisted that he could lead them to the location of Tanya's purse and Oregon identification card, something that Laverne had been unable to do, that they began to show interest. It wasn't until after Jesperson had led the detectives to those critical pieces of evidence lying behind a bush near the Sandy River that they began to believe him. I can't believe they were there after all that time. Yeah, that's a long time. That's amazing. <laughs> When taken to the location where Tanya's body was found, he provided them with information about the body and its position, details that no one other than the killer and cops could know. Adding credence to what Jesperson had provided them, Jesperson told the investigators to review his lawyer's notes that had been compiled in May of 1995 before the press or anyone else had any idea that Jesperson might be the happy face killer. 
Jesperson, through his attorney, indicated that he was willing to plea no contest to the murder of Tanya. And with that, we are going to wrap up this week's episode of part one of the Happy Face Killer. Come back next week, addicts, for a continuation in the investigation, the trial, and some insight from his daughter. Ooh, so good. (laughs) I can't wait to get into part two. This is going to be so good. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so come back next week, guys, for part two. Until then, stay alive, stay alert, and and stay stay caffeinated. caffeinated.